0: You may have heard me say before, but that's never stopped me from saying again, that G.K. Chesterton, who is eminently quotable, had a great quotation in the early 20th century in England during the women's liberation movement, about which he had some concerns. So it's wise of me to bring this up. I'm only quoting something that he said, but it's pithy and it's profound as he is wont to be. He said this. 10,000 women in England have said, have insisted, we came to be dictated to. And then they went out and became stenographers. I gauged that 67% of the people understood what I just said. 10,000 people have said, we will not be dictated to, and they went out and became stenographers. And when he said that, though it may anger many, he landed on the very same truth that the Apostle Paul is unweaving and unwinding before us today. And that is this. There are all manner of ways that we are influenced, that we are mastered, that we are enslaved And we don't have any idea about it because it feels like an exercise of our own autonomy. It feels like we're demonstrating our prowess as a person. We're deciding. And so it feels good. And so it never even occurs to us that someone might leave one kind of calling to go to another kind of calling. Thinking that they are acting as free agents when instead they've been sold a bill of goods. They're just trading slaveries. And it happens to all of us, says the Apostle. There are all manner of ways in Western civilization think that the way you get free is you do whatever you want. That freedom means, as we said last week, according to our Supreme Court, the right to decide your own concept of existence and of the universe and of the mystery of human endeavor. It's your right to decide all of these things for yourself. That is the dogma of Western civilization. That is the internal messaging that we have embraced, and it coincides with what is indigenous to our natural states. But the apostle would say, that's what's so sneaky about all this, that we actually are people who are always under the mastery of something. We can think, I'm not going to be dictated to, and go and let ourselves become those who write down the dictations of others. And he puts it like this. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey them as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? And in typical Pauline fashion in typical biblical fashion, They lay out some clear dividing lines without any kind of middle ground, which makes it a little frustrating, and it might make kids seem a little simplistic to you, but not if you think about it. Death. Go on to say, you're either a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you're a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. In this passage, he's going to say you're a slave to obedience. You can be a slave to righteousness or you can be a slave to God. These are all the same thing. They're all a sort of word cloud. They're similar in concept. But his big point is that you are always acting under the influence of something. Rest assured, you are not free the way you think. You've seen the movie Bruce Almighty. Well, I mean, if you've been alive and you flipped through cable, you had to see it because it comes on 40 times a week. But in this movie, one of the undercurrent themes of it is that Jim Carrey, Bruce, is so doggone frustrated that he don't get to decide stuff. He wants life to go his way, and most especially, he wants to get Jennifer Aniston to love him back. And Morgan Freeman, who's God, of course, I mean, of course, the whole Morgan Freeman is Yahweh. Morgan Freeman hands nine powers and lets him get a taste of what it's like to be God for a second. And he has all this omnipotence except in one realm. He cannot make Jennifer Aniston love him like so many men before. He can't do it. No matter what, he can't make her love him. That's sort of the theme of it. She's got free will. I can't violate that. I got all kind of power except against that girl. Except against that boy. Against anybody in their will. And so the Bible doesn't teach that. It's It's really cool and it's philosophically interesting to people. But the Bible doesn't actually teach that wills are free. That's why Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. The Bible would say that humans are actually way more determined. And in that respect, they agree with biological determinism. Humans are way more determined than they'd ever want to imagine. In fact, they feel like they're doing what they want. But they just want all the wrong things. So in a sense, you're free. I'm really doing this right now. Touchdown. I'm really doing that. I'm free to do it. We do things... But we always, and we do what we want, but we don't want the right things. And in that sense, our will is captive to something that keeps us away from God. It keeps us in an anti-God state of mind. This is how the apostle would call it. It's sin which leads, he says, to death. But when you've become converted, your will gets unlocked. Prison doors swing wide. These doors are going to swing wide, huh? If you know Raising Arizona, if you don't, shame on you. God has swung the doors wide, and now people who have been invaded by Jesus Christ have been given the capacity to do what they could not do before. Their wills have been unlocked, and they now can say yes to God in ways they couldn't before. Now they want to say yes to God in ways they didn't want to before. And so the apostle, in a way, is asking his audience, and as we eavesdrop on them, asking us, the question of influence. Who is influencing you the most? Who's influencing you the most? We have made determinations in our culture, wisely so, That there are certain kinds of things you can't do when you're under the influence of certain other kinds of things. Namely, you cannot drive a 2,000-pound weaponized steel apparatus on wheels called a car. You cannot drive. Recognize that when you're legally, when you're under the influence of alcohol or drugs, we recognize that when you're under the influence of some foreign substance, that your judgment is impaired. Your alertness is muted. Your control over your body is absent. And so we say it's not good for you to be influenced like that, so you can't operate a machine when you're under the influence of this foreign substance. And Paul would say we're all under the influence of someone. You're either under the influence of this concept he would call sin, or you're under the influence of... God as your master and really there isn't any other option you know Jesus says a similar thing once he was talking to some folks they're at a coffee shop fair trade coffee probably seven dollars a cup and and he says as all people say in polite company um you guys are children of the devil." Isn't Jesus sweet? You think Jesus is sweet because you haven't read the Gospels in a while. He said, you're children of the devil. Because you don't have my father as your father. And those are the options. Go on Maury Povich. Take a paternity test. And I can tell you this. You'll find. And that sounds. You're either children of the devil or you're children of God. And that sounds a little bit freaky, doesn't it? That sounds like fake news. Sad! Exclamation point. But you know what? That's part of the sinister thing about this. The Bible claims to give us a true take on what's happening in the world. The Bible doesn't believe we're a closed system. The Bible doesn't believe that there's a a brass ceiling that we're, we're domed in and there's no intrusion from transcendence. In fact, the Bible believes that there are angels and gods. The Bible believes that this is a populated place with things you can see and things you cannot see. And the Bible always insists that someone is either under the influence of the evil one or of themselves. And the way it feels is never like someone saying, I love Satan. I love to do what Satan wants. Of course not. Except you might know like three weird people who say stuff like that and stay away from them when they're announcing it. But what happens is way more subtle. He's a father of lies. Sin itself, we're told, is deceitful. It's tricks. It befuddles us. It bewilders us. And so the way it feels is just like me doing whatever I want. It feels like I ain't being controlled by Except for me. I decide for me. I'm free to do what I want. Any old time. Situation. You know come on, you've seen the song. And so the apostle says, these are your two choices. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. One leads to death, one leads to righteousness. And it's important, I think, to to name a term here for a second. Because when you hear the word sin, most of us, it's certainly culturally, and this will help your friends and some of you who may be here and not Associated with church stuff so much. When we hear the word sin, so oftentimes we think of sin as one thing, sex. Dorothy Sayers wrote an essay about this in the 40s, I think, called The Other Six Deadly Sins. Where she says, in our time, the word sin has been telescoped into one concept, sex. And of course, Paul is going to address that here. He says, in the past, when you were slaves to sin, you offered your body in slavery to impurity. Impurity is his word that he uses throughout the New Testament for all kinds of sexual immorality. So sin does include that. It includes specific acts. And for the Apostle Paul and for all the rest of the Bible and for all of church history for the last 2,000 years except for the last five minutes, woman, this is the... ...surrounding sex have been outside of marriage between a man and a woman. This is the, the arena for good things to run wild is within a man and a woman's marriage. And there is no other healthy, lawful, God-directed, God-sanctioned, God-pleasing sexual expression. So he speaks about that, as does all the Bible and all of the Jewish and Christian people forever until, like I said, five minutes ago. But it's not just sex. Sin is much broader. It's this preferencing of ourselves in our way over all other selves and all other ways. It's the sense that my will is the most important one to be heeded and the most important one to be obeyed. It's the sense that whatever I desire, that should I not obey it, I'm diminishing myself. And then can't you see how the Bible would call sin what Americans call self-actualization? Americans would say, if you're married... And you don't want to be. You can't diminish yourself and just run away and stay in a marriage. What's wrong with you? Follow your heart, man. And they never say, follow your heart so long as your heart is good. So long as your heart is informed by love and care and consideration for other selves besides yours. Follow your passions so long as your passions are useful to the world. And you have an opportunity that's not going to injure people. But help them. But we don't qualify it. We just say, follow your heart. And the Bible would say, no, stop it. Don't follow your heart. You can never follow your heart safely until you know that your heart has been acted on by Christ. And then you can start to listen to parts of your heart. He says, you were slaves to sin. But thanks be to God, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching that was entrusted to you. He used the word obey, teaching. It was presented to you that Christ was meant to liberate you from your preoccupation to yourself, from being stuck in the gloomy dungeon of yourself, from being allergic to God, from being in competition with all other selves. And he said, I'll forgive you for your inabilities to keep the law. I'll forgive you of them. You're all clean. I'll take away all your shame. I'll cover you in my righteousness. And now I'll take up residence in you so that you can have approximations, at least in this life, of an undivided heart so that you may fear my name. You're going to, when you've been acted by, on by Christ, and some of you experience this, I hope lots of you do, you start finding yourself saying, what does God want? What would be good for her? What would just be good for us? What would be good for me? What would be good for him instead of what would be good for me? What would be good for my community instead of what would just be good for us? That's what happens when you wholeheartedly embrace and are shaped and formed by the teachings of scripture as paul is laying out here so the question who's influencing you the most you're always being influenced by someone is it is it merely by yourself or this this reign of sin or is it by god himself and if so what's going to happen is you're going to find new desires percolating within you new new issues welling up but the other thing that Paul wants to talk about. It's not just influence. But he wants to talk a little bit about specificity. And that's why he talks about obedience. See, if you've hung around Christian people very long. Especially in America. You will hear in a way that you didn't hear people talking a long, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. You'll hear people a lot saying, hey man, if your heart's not in it, don't do it. We're under, we're under grace, man. not under law. And Paul is ex- exa- exactly addressing that right now. What then shall we say? Shall we sin... Because we are not under law, but under grace. He knows that every time he spills out the gospel which says, You've been saved entirely by the work of another, you can't earn even a fig of this. You've got God's favor, free and clear. Because residence in you and so Christ. And you've died to sin and now you've risen to a new life, and he's taken up residence in you. And so the obvious question when people hear this is it doesn't matter what we do, right? If we're saved by grace, it doesn't matter what we do. We can do whatever we want. And Paul would say, uh Uh, what? That's what, by no means. That's, that's him doing this. It's him going, McFly! What? <laughs> what? So he tries to explain it. No, 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 what's happened is, you were... Dead in sins and transgressions. You were held in dominion by Satan. And you have been ripped out and put in the kingdom of the son that he loves. You've been acted upon by Christ. You've been given a new disposition. Formerly, you were like my former, like the Hennigars. They used to have a dog, this, uh, I can't, a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. that had three legs because our, the people who lived in our house before us shot him, which is why he hated me. And so he only had three legs, but that did not stop him from retrieving. That did not stop him from interrupting anything that you were doing. He would stand there with a log in his mouth, a log, like a tree-sized log. Because he wasn't messing around. He wasn't a sissy three-legged dog. And he would drop that thing at your feet. And if you did not immediately throw it into the creek for him to go with his three legs to get it and retrieve it to you again, he would go, whoa! And he's like, that's a, I can take. You see how close I am to your hand? I've got sharp canine teeth here. I can, uh, I can take care of your hand if you do not obey me. Roof! So you would throw the thing again. You'd try to be talking there. He'd be standing on you, slobbering on you. Roof! Because he couldn't not retrieve. And what would you think if all of a sudden that dog came up to you and was like, Oh, I'd really like to retrieve, but I can see you guys are talking. Roof! He like puts a paw on your shoulder like kids trying to interrupt their parents without interrupting them. He would have to have a new nature, right? He would have to have something happen to him, a new nature. And Paul would say, that's what's happened to Christians. Is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you were formerly like this dog that could not sin. You could not just choose your own way. Even when you were doing good, it wasn't for God, it was for yourself. And then God invades you and you get a new nature. The Spirit of Christ lives within you. And all of a sudden you find yourself weirdly saying huh, I wonder if I should give away money. I wonder if I should help that poor person. I wonder if I should step in and offer to help that mom who has 16 kids and looks a little frazzled. I wonder if I should not gossip about this person because that might hurt them. I wonder if I should tell the truth right now at my job even though it might be costly to me. You start finding yourself saying, hey, Lord, help me to do my job. You got a new nature. You start thinking of everything differently and you're thinking, what's happening to me? You got a new nature. And so that's why Paul would say, that's why you can't say you're, under, you're not under the law anymore, you're not, which is you're not under the penalty of the law. But you're now in this new domain of God's grace, which sets you free to want to please him and to try to please him. And so Paul, when he says, you're not under law, but you're under grace, but then he goes on to say, but you're slaves to obedience. You offer yourselves, the members of your body, as members of obedience which leads to righteousness, the result is eternal life. His whole thought is, you know, at the beginning of his book, he talked about preaching to the Gentiles the obedience of faith. His whole thought is, once you believe in Christ, something happens to you, and you have a whole new take on reality. And if you really believe that, then you can't but not start to live differently. That doesn't mean your old nature doesn't pop up. But all of a sudden, you see the world in a new way. Christ is king of it. He's Lord of it. He's the decider of my destiny, and my destiny and my times are in his hands. You start to believe that take, and you act as if it's so. And all of those actions always become very specific. That's why Paul in Corinthians can say, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts. What counts is keeping the commandments. In some places he gets that when you've got a new Christian say that, what counts is keeping the commandments. Because Paul thinks that when you've got a new... Vitality Of Christ in you Then you're going to want to keep the commandments And he knows something That Americans don't know about love And I'm going to give you this free marital advice Love Is not a virus And it's not Like a sensation When you've had that perfect amount of coffee And you just like You just feel like the world just got better that's not love. That's, that's, that's a strong sense of affection and infatuation. And those are wonderful sensations that people get. But the Bible never talks about love primarily like that. The Bible talks about love in terms of very specific, practical kinds of commands. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will give me lots of flowers. Oh, wait, no, he doesn't say that. He says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. And Paul is talking about offering ourselves as slaves to obedience Mike Mason said one of the problems about marriage, it's that marriage advice. One of the problems about marriage is that it's not that love is too amorphous. It's that love gets so doggone specific. And it starts to take the form of so many commands in a relationship. Thou shall not, for shall not day of your anniversary. Thou shall not fail to take out the trash when thy bride has asked thee to take it. Thou shalt not run the power saw in the garage when the baby is sleeping. Thou shalt not leave wet towels recklessly strewn about the bathroom floor. Specific commands, and they're opposite ones of I Think about them in our own life. This will change your life if you start to think like this, if you start to appreciate what other people are doing for you and what you could do for them. I think Kathy Youngblood demonstrates her love for us in this, that while we were yet watching the Braves game, she washed the dishes. (laughs) She demonstrates her love for us in this, that while we yet had soiled the clothes with all manner of dirt from baseball fields, she washed them, though we did not deserve it. Though we were yet hungry, she cooked supper for us. Though we did not pay, and we did not probably properly thank her. See, love always, whether it's an employer with an employee, or vice versa, or with roommates, or with good friends, or with parents and kids, always winds up taking the form. Don't do specific commands of consideration, of thoughtfulness. Don't do this because that would hurt them. Do this because that would be a help to them. And therefore, Paul says, if you're a slave to God and he's your primary influence, then you're going to listen to the things he says. He's going to have your ear and you're going to think about what does God care about? Well, he cares about other people and he wants me to also. So he gives me these commands like don't envy them. Don't covet against them. Don't take things from them. Be generous to them. Speak truthfully to them. Don't use them lustfully. Don't use them sexually. Don't use them economically. Because they matter to him. Specific commands. But see, one of the things that can happen though, and Paul recognizes this very well, is that you can offer yourself to obedience, but sometimes you can go back to living as if you're under the slavery of sin. When Kathy and I were first married, we lived in Nashville. We had a duplex uh, mate, no, I don't know, they weren't our mates, but they lived next door. And you could tell from the beginning it was an interesting combination. You had a, a, a sort of a construction worker from Texas and a nurse from Canada, and I had no idea how that happened. But this this uh, this little guy, I liked him so much. They were so entertaining. And his wonderful family, had a little kid. So big, you could take my... And one day, I was talking to him and admiring this, this gigantic truck he had. It was so big, you could take my Nissan Cintra and put it right in the back. You probably could put it in the cab of the truck. And it was, it was, big, it was a truck bigger in our neighborhood, bigger in our house. And I was asking him about it. I said, man, this is a fine truck. I was asking him how, you know. And he said, oh, man. Yeah, one day, I just drove right by the dealership on my way home from work, picked it up. Drove that thing home. And I said, without telling your wife? Ha, I didn't tell her nope. And you can bet I was on the couch for three days after that. And I thought, that's it? Three days? As a young person, I was particularly startled by this revelation because I had this sense, like, wait a minute. I didn't think married people were supposed to buy a $400,000 truck, which is what it had to have cost. Isn't that, is that about reasonable? A $400,000 truck without talking to their spouse because that's a huge decision that affects both of your lives and your you were living like a single person, even though you were married. You were living like a person who was untethered to another, even though you were tethered to another. And we all do that. And so Paul is saying, well, you have an opportunity, though, all the time. You have an opportunity not to keep offering yourself over to your own desires, but to offer yourself over to God. And you see scriptural people doing that all the all time. Find their desires altering. They find bad desires getting killed. You find the psalmist saying, Oh Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. You hear Augustine saying, Oh Lord, command to me whatever you will, but grant what you command. Because what happens is when you start offering yourself to God at the beginning of every day, you offer your work to him, your family to him, your intentions, your heart, your sins even. See, sin. When you're under the sway of sin, it demands you hide your failures and your rebellions, but God demands that you disclose them so he can throw them out with the trash. And you ask him, Lord, use me as an instrument today. Let me be an instrument of your righteousness. Let me be a depiction of your warmth and mercy in the world. And Lord, there's so many ways in which I know what you command, but I can't do it. Will you empower me for it? you alter me for it and then you live unto it you can either be a slave to sin or a slave of God and he acknowledges it's an inadequate metaphor I put it in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves it's not the only way to say it he's your father and you're his child the hymn writer said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear duty in voice changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. It's important to realize when you're thinking about this day and tomorrow, who am I offering myself to? Who has my ear? Who am I most being influenced by? What specific commands is my allegiance taking? Is it taking specific obedience to my own preferences or specific obedience to God? It's worth asking yourself, who's influencing me? And as you're answering that question, you might ask a follow-up diagnostic question. It's helpful sometimes. Have I ever stopped doing one thing because of my love to Jesus Christ. Or have I ever started doing one thing. Because of my love to Jesus Christ. And if you don't know an answer to that question. Well then have some conferences with Jesus. And with your Christian friends. And, and offer yourself to him and say. Oh Lord move me to walk in your ways. Produce your fruit from me. Because that's what life was made for. Sin, as your master, has no interest in your flourishing, has the intention as to pretend that it does. Jesus, as your master, has the intention, as Jag read to us, of breaking the bars of everything that yokes you so that you may walk with your heads held high. He wants you to live forever. He wants you to have dignity. He wants you not to hang your head in shame or be eaten up with guilt. He doesn't want you to be mastered by pornography or by debt or by anger or by gluttony or by bitterness. He wants you to be set free from those things because he's a good shepherd. And he wants you to receive the gift of eternal life, not to earn the wages of a life serving yourself called sin. Will you receive his gift? Will you offer yourself to him? Oh, man, I hope you will. Amen.